to talk about how problematic it is that lobstering is so romanticized in this comic. It's hard and dirty work. Welcome back to Check This Please, a podcast where we're rereading the webcomic Check Please now that it's over to revisit our favorite strips of yore, such as today's strip, 2.3 Meet the Frogs, which was originally posted on November 24th, 2014. I'm Secret, and that's all you need to know. Hey, I'm Tomato, and today I'm drinking pink grapefruit cascade ice. Okay, guys, I'm pretty sure this announcement will be timely. We are having a fundraiser on October 3rd at 10 p.m. British summertime, 2 p.m. tomato zone. We are going to be watching The Mighty Ducks. We talked a little bit about it on our oppositional fandom South Park and Check Please episode because the South Park episode we watched was based on The Mighty Ducks. And then Jovi, our guest on that episode, was like, you guys should watch that movie. And the only circumstances under which I would watch that movie is for money. However, the money is not going to us. It's going to the democratic cause or candidate of your choice. It's a sticky situation. One thing we can do is charge people money, at least, you know, minimum $10 in contributions to come listen to us, I don't know, talk about Amelia Westevez or whatever. Saturday, October 3rd, 2 p.m. PT, 10 p.m. BST, minimum $10 donation. You can send a picture with your information redacted of your donation as proof to either our Tumblr inbox, or you can send it to secretomg at gmail.com. That's S-E-K-R-I-T-O-M-G at gmail.com. And we will send you a link to our live stream. Uh, it's, a, it's a Zoom where we're going to be watching the movie and you and I will be commentating the movie. Sure will. You know, as if it were a hockey game. Please do donate as much as you can, $10 minimum. But, you know, if you have a little extra, uh, the world is ending. So, you know, throw your money at it. Why not? If you really want to come and you need a couple extra bucks, uh, hit me up at tomatorights.tumblr.com. Just send me a message and we can talk about it. If you're not in the U.S., make a donation to the left-leaning cause of your choice. We have had people make donations, for example, to abortion funds in the U.K. We love abortions here on this podcast. That's fine as well. But we're really hoping to like get money in the pockets of people who can win races and defeat Republicans specifically in November. So please... If you need ideas, Secret wrote a really great list of people to potentially donate to. So you can check that out on Tumblr as well. Yeah. So one thing that's not on that list, actually, that started getting buzz like within a day of me posting that list is apparently the Senate race in Alaska is quasi viable because they're freaks up there and their version of Republicanism is like very libertarian, like don't tell me what to do leaning. So apparently it's possible that the... Senate seat in Alaska could get flipped. So it seems like the whole map is activated. Let's go. All right, then do you want to summarize the comic? Yeah, I forgot about that part. Okay, hang on. (laughs) 
We open with Biddy in his room at Samwell, charmingly appointed. Senor Bun peeking in from the background. Fuck you, Senor Bun. Anyway, he's holding a puck. I don't know. I just needed to update you about that. Biddy introduces us to the fact that two of the Samwell frogs are having some problems. He says, I don't expect the frogs to be the very best of friends, but they're part of the Samwell men's hockey team. And that means even if they hate each other, they have to have each other's backs. We then go into a sequence of events where we see Nursey and Dex at odds with each other. Chowder comes to talk to Biddy about this problem, explains various situations in which he has been harmed by this tension between, and I quote, his best friends. He asks Biddy to help him with this problem, and then please, please, please don't tell Jack. We then cut to Biddy talking to Nursey about his problems with Dex. Nursey says that Dex Although he isn't exactly the same as the whack, conservative, hyper-privileged, uptight guys that Nursey played with at Andover, isn't not those dudes. Meanwhile, Dex is really frustrated because, as he says, he had to go work on his uncle's lobster boat for three summers to pay for his hockey equipment, and he's frustrated by the way that Nursey kind of discusses class and other issues of that nature. Chowder eventually asks, hey, Biddy, did you talk to them? Are they friends? And Biddy's like, yeah, I can't do anything about it. And... Uh, in the background, Ransom asks, who wants to share a best friend Sunday? And Holster says, me, me, I do. And that's, that's the end of the comic. I didn't know where to put this on the outline, but I'm really sort of intrigued by the fact that Chowder is eating two sandwiches. He's a hungry boy. I don't like how I said that. I actually really hate how that came out. It makes me upset, which is fine. I think the easiest thing to kind of cover here is basically what the strip tells us about Biddy. And as a corollary to that, I'm very interested in the question of why is Chowder coming to him with this? What is it about Biddy that has appealed to Chowder? Biddy and Chowder won't have known each other for that long. Why does he presume that Biddy is the person who can solve this problem. And before you answer, I just want to say, I don't think the information is in the comic. First of all, he was the point of contact for the frogs when they were tadpoles, bringing them, as you may remember, animated bags of goodies that I got very upset about. So he's sort of a friendly face who introduces himself as someone who cares a lot. I think that's part of it. I think Biddy's demeanor, as we've seen him so far, is as someone who interferes and meddles in a caretaking way in any situation that, frankly, he cares to get his hands on. So if Chowder has ever seen Biddy in action with other people on the team, or sort of sees him as the person who makes himself the, the man to go to if you have a problem, it makes sense that it would manifest in this way. Do we see that in the comic? No. But I think that you can make guesses based on other things we've seen Biddy do that Biddy might set himself up in this way. My actual reason is that I think Ngozi wants Biddy to be the heart of the team, and this is a narrative way to make that happen without having to deeply explain how any of these relationships work. She just made it happen. As for what it tells us about Biddy, I don't fully know what it tells us about Biddy. I feel conflicted about several things happening in this strip, like, Everybody on Samuel Hockey has to have each other's backs, but last year that wasn't the case and we've never seen any resolution to that storyline other than the fact that Jack and Fiddy are just friends now. I think there's, there's ways to read into that that make it make sense. To me, this moment 
is a little bit revisionist history or something, or, or maybe not revisionist history, but I don't know. There's a tension there that obviously he and Jack do resolve their problems. So I don't know why I'm tripping up on this moment, but I, something about it makes me feel weird. I think it shows that he isn't actually like particularly good at this caretaking role that he's assigned himself or that other people are giving him since he goes and talks to Nursey and Dex and then the conclusion is like, well, can't do anything about it. Or maybe that there are limits to that role. I think that's something that would really explain a lot of this and make it make sense within the comic would be if Chatter started his uh, entreaty by saying something like, Biddy, people tell me that you and Jack had conflict last year and somehow you managed to work it out. Can you give me any advice about how to manage this interpersonal situation within the team? Yeah, that would do a lot of heavy lifting, but it's not here. I think that would resolve my, my feelings about, well, we have to have each other's backs, which obviously takes the language directly from that conflict with Jack, but doesn't actually reference it. I think that would solve my weird tension around that too. The most interesting thing about this comic to me is Biddy looks so bored in a couple of these panels, especially while he is listening to Nursey rant. But then also at the end, he is just kind of like, well, what can you do? And that's like the conclusion to the story. He's basically like, sorry, I don't think he tried very hard. (laughs) I think he basically just went to have one conversation with both of them. It was just like, well, it's irreparable. Yeah, that's my impression as well. I mean, there's a narrative reason for this, right? The narrative reason is that the pair who have to get along professionally but spark against each other personally is a classic trope of romance. We see it with Jack and Biddy. I don't necessarily know that Ngozi set this up as a ship, but like, yes, actually, I think it was set up as a ship, maybe deliberately. And I think that this sparking pattern is a way to make characterization happen and be interesting and to show a contrast to Holster and Ransom. There's not a narrative reason to solve the tension because then they would be just like Ransom and Holster, right? Like then there would be no differentiation between these D-man pairs. I think that's the real reason that he doesn't solve it. But you know, in universe, yeah, he didn't try very hard. He said, what don't you like about that guy? Oh, okay. What don't you like about that guy? Well, okay. And then that's like the end of the conversation. Well, it turns out they have good reasons to hate each other, Biddy concluded. There's also a little bit in the blog post where Ngozi says, every moment Biddy spends worrying about other people is a moment he could be scheming the touching of the butt of the Jack Zimmerman. That's in the question voice. And then the answer voice, true, but the two byproducts of Eric Biddle's existence are pies and an endless desire to care for others. Related, he can't not care. People greater than butts. First of all, are people greater than butts? You know, jury's out. I find this really fascinating because is this actual care? Is this what we're seeing in this comic? Like, what does caretaking or caring mean for Eric Biddle? And I think the answer we're supposed to get, of course, he's a ray of sunshine who like blossoms love in the heart of the coldest D-man or whatever. Like that's his role. That's clearly what we're supposed to read here. And also that like, there are some things beyond even Biddy's sunshiny ray, but like presumably at some point, 
you know, these two will learn to get along through the impact of his love. All of that sounded like a euphemism. So somebody write that fic, but I didn't mean it that way. Uh, And I think that's how we're supposed to read it. But what I'm actually seeing here is Biddy inserting himself into a situation at the request of someone else and then like not actually super listening to the people involved or like trying to change it for the better in any way. So then that that makes me wonder more about what what is his actual caretaking look like? Who what are the goals and aims of his caretaking? Well, arguably in this comic strip he listens. Also, we know that he likes to make food for people and put together gift bags. Right. But does he ever actually seem to listen to what people want? Like whether they want the food or if they need him to listen to them or if he will do something based on listening to them that they ask him to do? Like, I guess Chowder asked him to do something and he did. I don't know. There's just something here where to me the the, the caretaking is very much not related to actual patterns of care that I see in my real life. And instead it seems more like Biddy's need to insert himself or Biddy's need to perform a certain kind of act rather than something that might ameliorate the situation, which is what I would associate with like more thoughtful caretaking, I guess. Chatter asks him to talk to them with the implication being that they need to stop doing this, that what Chatter wants is for them to stop arguing. The one thing that's really compelling about this situation to me is that apparently they're not playing as well as they could because they're letting their personal animosity get in between each other. And in fact, if they're supposed to be the team's defensemen and their personal dynamic is keeping them from, you know, getting pucks out of the zone, it's making Chatter's job harder. So it's not just like mental stress. It's like he can't be as good a goalie if he can't rely on the D men on the team to like stop as many pucks as they can before they get to chowder. It seems as though this actually is a problem and it actually is a problem impacting chowder. It's interesting to me that chowder himself, for whatever reason, doesn't feel like he can have these conversations. And then it seems to me like what Biddy should have done, especially considering how the scenario was set up at the beginning, was go to each of these guys individually or together and say, knock it the fuck off. You guys are letting the hockey team down. But he doesn't say that. He just kind of like listens to their gripes, almost as if they're all gossiping. I guess listening to people's gripes is part of caretaking, but I just think that Biddy tends to act in a way that I would call vaguely maternal in the way that he uses food, in the way that he kind of talks to people. This is like often the role he adopts. This is how I would name the role. Maybe other people would feel differently. That's how I would call it though. It's not to solve this interpersonal problem. It's not to solve Chowder's issues. It's not to make the hockey team better, or at least that doesn't, he doesn't, maybe he doesn't know how to do something that would help those goals. Instead, he's just like, yeah, yeah, okay. Seems bad, you know, which is not really anything. I I don't know. I just find it really interesting that this is couched so clearly as care when I'm like, is this care? Does he care about these people? 
I guess he does. Yeah. Okay. So you made the point that there's got to be other D-men on the team and why can't they just play with other people? Well, that would require us to know of some of the other demon on the team who aren't Ransom and Holster, and we don't, so uh, that's not workable. I really feel like this would have taken a second to be explained in a way that's related to hockey and the workings of the team. And I know why it wasn't. It's because hockey doesn't really matter. But uh, the other people on the team, except for Ollie and Wicks, you know, noted romance of the Samuel men's hockey team. Like, those other guys, they don't matter. Who cares about them? They're faceless. I do feel like there's an obvious solution, which is, like, if they're not playing well together, wouldn't the team, Murray and Hall, put them with other people? And I actually think that that gets talked about in this strip. Oh, yeah. Dex says, and honestly, I don't know why Hall or Murray pair me with him. Yeah, me neither, Dex. What's the answer here? There must be some reason. But anyway, it doesn't really matter. Well, as you remember, the reason why they posted noted antagonist Jack and Biddy to the same line was because everybody just had a sort of innate, baseless comprehension of the fact that they would play better together. Or actually, excuse me, Jack would play better with Biddy on his line. So you can sort of see maybe where the kind of shippy stuff comes from. It's this like, if you just put them together, these two guys, you don't really make it. Like, all of a sudden, it'll just, they'll be a really productive hockey duo based on nothing. I feel weird about Chowder also saying, please don't tell Jack. He says it twice. That's what's so weird about it is... It's reiterated. And the second time, it's like, please, 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 please don't tell Jack. And it's like, why? Isn't Jack the captain? Wouldn't he, like, want to know about dynamics that are interrupting the hockey ability of his players? Well, we don't see Chowder and Jack interact, I think, until way, way later in the year when Jack decides, apropos of nothing, to give Chowder his dibs. Nothing in the universe of the comic, but we got to have all the main characters in the same place. Come on. Yeah, it's this is so weird. And it's so weird for, like, a number of reasons. First of all, the fact that, like, the last time we saw somebody on the team having, like, an interpersonal or like a personal issue, Jack noticed and uh, did something about it. And you'd think that he would have noticed and done something about this as well. Like Jack wants to win. Jack is concerned about what's going on with the hockey team. So you'd think that, yes, he would notice and be aware of and be proactively taking steps to fix the fact that their newly recruited D-man pair is fucking up on the ice you'd think he would like notice that the other thing that you've raised is what would jack do if he knew this information again i think if they were just having this problem off the ice and not on the ice okay maybe jack doesn't notice or care but as soon as it crosses onto the ice we've seen evidence as you say that jack notices and cares about things that impact you know ability to play So why would he be mad at Chowder saying, hey, I've noticed this thing is interrupting our play? Why would he like react in a bad manner to someone bringing him helpful information that's not even about Chowder? And does that then mean that he's gone back to screaming at everybody? Like why would Chowder be intimidated of Jack 
other than if Jack gave someone a reason to be intimidated? Like, is it just that he's tall and bad Bob's son and he's very good at hockey? I mean, I'd probably be intimidated by him, to be fair. But if you're on the same team as him, seeing his, like, fucking, you know, sweat pimples every day, like, why are you scared to bring him information about how he could make the team better? I don't understand what the potential reaction is seen to be, unless it's that horrible reaction we saw at the very beginning of year one. And I thought Jack was beyond that now because he's been upgraded to love interest category. So, you know, he can't just scream at people anymore. Well, we don't have any evidence in the comic that that's what's happening. Again, this is one of these things that would be like an interesting fanfic. It's like, you know, question, why was Chowder afraid to tell Jack 1,500 words about how, you know, Chowder has observed that Jack sucks or whatever, but it's not actually in the comic. So it can't be substantiated. Like, don't you want more people helping you resolve the situation? I can understand if Chowder feels more comfortable going to Biddy because, I mean, as we saw, Biddy brought gift bags to recruitment, whereas Jack didn't even show up. So I can understand how Chowder would maybe like go to Biddy with the understanding that like the upperclassmen on the team would find out if they got it through Biddy and then would like fix the situation for him. I don't understand why he would want Biddy to keep it from Jack. And then it's further weird in the context of the strip because Biddy doesn't remark on that at all. He doesn't say anything like, oh, Jack is harmless. He seems kooky, but like he's actually a nice guy. Don't worry about it. Biddy doesn't like react to that, even though Chowder says it twice. And then the fact that it's in the strip twice kind of implies that maybe it was hinting at like something else going on in the background, or maybe it was building some sort of plot about Jack or about Jack's temper or his ability to handle things. But this never comes back. It never goes anywhere. Who knows? Who knows what what was in the back of Ngozi's mind when she put this into the script and then whatever she was thinking never actually got written out or pulled through. All right, so let me get some more shit about best friends. The only relationship that matters, except for husbands, which is just another way of saying best friends. Yeah, I don't understand this. Like, why don't any of these people have friends or lives before Samwell. Surely one of them would have a best friend left over from high school, even if they then had, you know, a friend breakup or something. I don't know. How do you become best friends with someone when you've known them for a month? Like, I don't personally have that relationship with best friendship. And in fact, I'll go out on a limb here and just tell you, I can't remember if we've talked about this before, but I think the label of best friends is uh, limited and it's not really one that I use. So I just find it really curious that Chowder has known these two dudes who hate each other for less than a month or something. And he's like, that's it. They're my best friends now. Now they've become the most like integral pillars of friendship in his life that he can't be without. I just don't understand this. So like, there's a lot of criticism in the fandom about how Chowder is often depicted in a very simplified manner as if he is not very bright and potentially childlike. I understand that this can be taken to 
extremes and that there is, I think, an issue with depicting a character of Chinese descent like this. At the same time, I really feel like that's basically just how he's being depicted here. His understanding of things doesn't seem all that complicated. He's unable to talk to his best friends about resolving personal relationship tension between the three of them. I feel like people who make that characterization and fan work are looking at something like this. And basically, that's where they're getting it from. Right. And that means that the canon itself is also playing into a potentially troubling pattern of infantilization of like East Asian men, basically. I feel like the original sin for this characterization lies in the comic. Like, not only is best friendship a particularly, like, simplistic way of looking at something, it's also, I think, relatively naive to presume that because people are friends, indeed even best friends, they wouldn't necessarily have conflicts or that they ought not have disagreements. I just also think that the way that Chowder handles this is like pretty naive and limited, that he basically, you know, turns to somebody else who's not involved with it to basically be like, hey, can you fix my situation with me? Because like, I don't, for me, because I don't even know what to do. Now, here's the thing. He is an 18 year old or I don't know. I don't know when his birthday, when his birth year is. Maybe he's like, what, 19? So he's not that old and he's a freshman in college. And he's just moved away to the other side of the country. So I'm not saying like this kind of person in real life definitely for sure needs to like understand everything about how relationships work and handle every situation with like grace and nuance. But within the context of the comic and how it's being framed, he does seem kind of like, I don't know what's happening. I'm just like a little rag doll being, you know, pulled back and forth between these two stronger willed guys on either side of me. And that's also being depicted through gifts. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I, I just, I feel like it's a, it's a characterization that's kind of coming through here. And then he eats two sandwiches. He's very hungry. Ah. Listen, blocking pucks is hungry work. I don't want to tell you. I don't know. I feel weird even commenting on this. Like, maybe I'm thinking like, oh, I'm going to need to cut this out. But like... Yeah, I don't know. It's a it's a very it's a very limited, very narrow way of thinking of people best friends. And I feel like arguably it's in keeping with a wider characterization for Chowder as being quasi childlike or at least unjaded to a point of simplicity. Yeah, and it's interesting to me too, because now that I'm really looking at this again and thinking about the way that Nursey and Dex are specifically uh, characterized in this strip versus is in the comic overall. Um, I think even in this very first strip where we really dive into any of them, Nursey and Dex are both drawn, uh, not literally. The tensions that each character is given are more complex than anything Chowder does in this comic, even though he's the catalyst for the action. So there is this kind of difference between these three different characters in the way that they're being portrayed and in their complexity, I guess. 
Not that cheddar doesn't have the potential to be complex. And I will also say like, many people in this comic are not as complex as they have the potential to be. So this is a, this is certainly not only happening with chowder, but it is particularly potentially a problem with chowder because of this other media history. And obviously history of, of like racist tropes. But then finally we come to the meat of the issue, which is Dex and Nursey, lovers. <laughs> All right, listen. I really like these two panels, or these four panels, actually. The conversation between Nursey and Biddy and the conversation between Dex and Biddy. I think it does the best characterization work of, like, maybe any four panels that we've seen in the entire comic so far, with maybe one or two exceptions for Biddy. I think that this is, like, a really interesting portrait of how these two characters have experiences in tension with each other. I just think they're nicely done in a way of getting exposition across in a thoughtful manner. So nice job in Gozi. Like I'm into these these few panels. Where they're set, how they're drawn, all of that really contributes to the to the characterization work happening here. So the fact that like Nursey is outside, like just lounging in a pile of leaves, people are walking by. He doesn't give a shit. He's just kind of rolling around on the ground in nature. It's very like, for some reason, the phrase I want to use is like manic pixie dream boy, but I'm not totally confident that that's like the exact right phrase. But still, there's something about him that's like loose and open and like he doesn't care what's going on around him. And he's like reading a book. His long limbed posture is very sort of like splayed across, you know, just like a formless pile of garbage. And then you look at Dex and he's sitting upright in a chair at a desk in a computer lab doing work and not even doing work, but like literally working on his homework. You learn quite a bit and like, oh, and his body is tensed. Like in the final panel that he appears in, he's like, ah, you know, it's like you can sort of feel the stress like radiating off of him. It is good. It's it's very well designed. Like you can see that he appears in a regimented school setting where his concern is like getting his work done, following through on his responsibilities. Nursey is more of a free spirit and he's got a leaf on his head. I wanted to point out the leaf on his head because I think that's where it really goes like a little manic pixie dream boy. And also, have you ever sat in leaves for a while while reading? It would be very unpleasant. Leaves are scratchy. What I really love about this, and I think actually this is a point towards something that you noted that Ngozi has said about Nursey, which is not super clear in the comic itself, that the chillness is a front for a decidedly less chill interior. This posturing he's doing, lounging in literally a pile of scratchy leaves that are like, they're going to stick their little maple leaf stems through your sweater into your skin and then you're going to stand up and you're just going to be like covered in leaves. Arranging himself in this way points to that in a way that I I think is is really great. Not that she ever really makes it clear about anything about Derek Nurse's interiority to to be like entirely clear here, but I think there is a little gesture towards it here and I like that. I've actually never seen a pile of leaves this big. Oh really? I don't think I've ever seen a pile of leaves that like you could sit in. Oh, well, I grew up in a place where that happened every year. 
I grew up in a place where leads basically just like end up in the gutter. They they all end up like between the curb and the the street, and then they clog the drains. Also, um, Dex is left-handed. Oh, is he? Well, his his computer mouse appears to be on the left. Well, let's, I guess let's get into each of these panels and kind of talk about each character and the assumptions or ideas that they have about the other character. I'm really into the way that their tensions intersect and are complicated. I'm not totally sure how we're supposed to read it. So maybe we can talk about that towards the end. We start out with nursing saying a couple of things that I think are really interesting. I came to Samwell to get away from the whack, conservative, hyper-privileged, uptight guys I played with at Andover. Not like I'm saying that's Dex, but pretty sure bro went and put a Samwell Republican sticker on his laptop the other day. He came to Samwell to get away from the certain kind of guy, then says, well, Dex isn't one of those guys, but in some ways he is, right? So he's pointing at, at this kind of intersection or, or overlapping pieces of experience that Dex has with some of the people he went to school with at Andover. I also thought this was really funny because he's basically saying, I came to Samwell to get away from this sort of person. But he's also kind of saying like, I came to Samwell to get away from the atmosphere of an elite old establishment, small liberal arts school in the Northeast. So he really didn't go that far, everybody. He went to a school that is, if we compare it to an Ivy League, which Samwell, it can't be because it's not real, but it's based on Yale, right, in certain ways. And so um, so we can kind of put it into a certain kind of atmosphere. It's not like he went to state school. It's not like he went to the West Coast. It's not like he went to school, I don't know, like in some other country. He went to a, a school with an atmosphere that is based in the same kind of educational foundation that Andover, Phillips Andover Academy is based in. So it's kind of interesting that this is how Samuel is framed. And, and maybe we can explore that a little more. I also wanted to talk a little bit about Andover. Um, just because I looked up some stuff about it, I found out that the 2013-2014 tuition was $47,200 a year if you're boarding and $36,700 a year if you're going to the day school. But financial aid is available. It's a fairly diverse group of students, at least as far as elite boarding schools go. I couldn't get super reliable information about 2013-2014, but it looks like it is trying, at least as far as boarding schools go, and has a long history of trying to be relatively diverse in the kinds of students it accepts with various racial, religious, and socioeconomic backgrounds, which I didn't expect. And I actually found someone's like dissertation about this and I read some of it. Anyway, so uh, what's really interesting to me is I didn't know any of that about Andover. I don't know how much Ngozi thought about it before deciding to use Andover as her like fancy boarding school. It's still a very expensive fancy boarding school. Some people get financial aid, but of course there's still a certain number of people who go because their parents can pay. So we we can make guesses about Nursi's experience based on this. We don't know for sure because we never find out much about Nursi's life, but, but the assumption is that he's from a very socioeconomically privileged background, right? But I did think it was interesting that Andover was actually not entirely the school that I that I had expected it to be based on what I knew about Andover, which is that it's a fancy boarding school. What I would say is your observations about Nursi going from one small liberal elite Northeastern 
educational institution to another. I don't know. I think that's a really good point. I think we talked about this a little bit in relationship to Shitty because he made a similar journey, only with Shitty, it's explicit that his family wanted him to go to Harvard and instead he went to Samwell. I think in terms of educational institutions that nurse he could have gone to if he really wanted a different experience, he could have gone to a school in a city, but then it seems like he's from a city. So maybe that wasn't that interesting a choice for him either. He also could have gone to like a smaller, more radical liberal arts college or an art school or something that was more explicitly progressive in terms of its educational curriculum. Samwell seems to be very liberal and about as open as you'd expect from a liberal arts college, but it still seems to have like a relatively traditional by the book, pick a major, write a thesis on it type of educational program. It doesn't seem like an individualized study program or something that has a more experimental kind of structure. So there's all sorts of like diversity within the American higher educational system. You know, the way in which schools like this, which I have a good amount of experience with, function is tricky because they're small C conservative in the fact that they've been around for so long that they are inherently bound to certain traditions that they themselves invented. But places like that also tend to be relatively liberal in a sort of, I don't know, front-facing political sense. Like, educational institutions in the Northeast and indeed throughout the country, again, are usually maligned as, like, bastions of liberal thought. In some senses, these types of schools are always going to be kind of conservative because they're founded on principles and um, they use models that are relatively ingrained in the way systems of power in this country have been functioning since, you know, the foundation of the country or at least the foundation of like educational practice here, but in the ways that actually matter in terms of like your daily life at the school, they're usually pretty liberal. I was genuinely surprised not to overly congratulate Andover on on its history or on its current path, but it's genuinely a pretty interesting example of an elite boarding school. I should be clear, my experience of elite boarding schools is like reading girls novels by Enid Blyton or whatever. Like I, I've, I'm, I've never been in a boarding school system or anything like that. But I did, I did read about this particular school and it turns out that in 2007, it was able to finally, after decades of trying, become a need blind admission system. So students who are really uh, wanted in the program are accepted and then no matter who they are, they get financial aid depending on demonstrated need. 50% of the population are students of color. That's a bit unusual as well in sort of elite boarding schools. I'm sure that they have far to go. And of course, their history hasn't always been perfect. But as far as boarding schools in the U.S. go, they have a really interesting history. So I, I don't mean to belabor the point, but I think it's clear that regardless of the real Andover, this version of Andover is representing a certain kind of Northeastern 
rigorous and conservative, small C and maybe big C as well, like old school Republican Daughters of the Revolution style situation. I think that's clearly what it's supposed to be representing. But I guess I just don't completely understand how Samwell is supposed to be so different from this other experience and what it's offering Nursi that other small liberal arts schools of the Northeast like don't offer other than I guess the fact that it's very queer friendly. But other than that, I don't really understand like what's going on with Samwell. Yeah. So it's like he didn't go to Harvard or Princeton. He went to Swarthmore or Vassar. Yes, those schools are different than Princeton, but in their fundamental sort of foundational stories, they're relatively similar. Shocker, everybody, Vassar and Harvard, yeah, okay, they're different, but are they that different? Like, no, it's not like he goes to like New Mexico State or something, which would be a completely different institution with a completely different series of foundational practices and ideas and landscape and like I, and like what makes a good school. I mean, just like a completely different situation, right? This, I guess, what I'm trying to get at is in the same way that the conversation about Georgia and schools in Georgia and the South is limited, this portrayal of the Northeast is also limited. Like, it's strange to me that there is a narrative about the Northeast in this comic, which I did not notice the first time around, that troubles me and is very different from the Northeast that I am from. And so I am curious about the, the, the portrayal of what the Northeast is and can be and what its educational history is. Because it does have a specific educational history in specific religious practices with specific groups of people. Not that I think Ngozi is like going to research that, but I do just think it's, it's interesting and limited. Do you think we're meant to read Nursi as slightly disingenuous or maybe fooling himself a little? I don't know how deliberate that might be, but yeah, I actually think that that makes it much better. So yeah, I'll take it. She has said she designed this character to not be the same on the inside as he presents. And so I actually really like that. I think that makes that um, more compelling. Yeah, I mean, to be clear, in like paratexts, she has basically said, made a couple comments over the years about like, he's not internally as chill as he likes to appear on the exterior. It's not like a huge amount of commentary. Although if you have access to her, the now defunct patron blog, which you can still access. It's just no longer updated and hasn't been for like well over a year, if not much longer. There are a couple good posts about like his musical taste and other things like that. His feelings about like poetry slash hip hop or whatever, which are interesting. But yeah, I mean, none of them are like part of the comic. You'll notice there's no comic where Everybody goes to, like, Nursie's Poetry Slam or something like that. Oh, my God. Can you imagine Nursie's Poetry Slam? Yeah, I can because I've been to them before. So move yeah, on. I, when he says, chill, Biddy, I don't take any of that to the rink. That's also evidence of the fact that he is fooling himself or is disingenuous in some way because clearly he is actively arguing with Dex in a way that's preventing their ability to, like, play defense. So this is just not true. Biddy says, when... Nursey points out that Dex put a Samuel Republican sticker on his laptop, although he says pretty sure. So it's like, did he or did he not? Nursey, like, what did you see anyway? So I guess he, I guess we to take that he did. But he says, okay, I see how his opinions might bother you. And my question is, do Dex's Republican opinions bother Biddy? Slash, 
does Biddy have any political consciousness at all? And I'd love to know what you think. So as you did a little a little research into Andover, I did a little research into the election results for Morgan County, Georgia, which is where Madison is located. And the most recent election, presidential election, at the time of this comic was the 2012 presidential election, well, the general election. But in terms of who Morgan County voted for for president, it went for Mitt Romney. Yes, that's right. Current senator and national hero Mitt Romney. If you live in Utah, give him a call for 68.2% and for Obama by 30.4%. In the most recent election in our time, in 2016, Morgan County voted 69.2% for Trump and 28.1% for Clinton, with a cool 2.3% going to Libertarian candidate Gary Johnson. So, we have some listeners who aren't from the U.S., That's pretty bad. That's pretty Republican. Even if Biddy's family aren't Republicans or his parents aren't, he probably knows like a lot of them. Like most of the people he's living around probably are people who like vote for Republicans for president, for senator, for Congress, etc. He lives in a red state, in a red district, in a red state. He almost certainly has had to get used to Republicans not bothering him. If indeed he is not himself a Republican, and that of course is never really clarified. I will say there is one tweet where after the Georgia primary, Biddy makes a comment about how he's not dismayed by who his father voted for. But that's all the information that we get. We're talking about a primary, so hard to say what that means necessarily. All it means is that whatever Biddy thinks the worst thing his father could have voted for was, his father didn't vote for whatever that might have been. But with no other context, it, it, it's hard to make any kind of assessment about like what his parents' actual politics might be. Still, you know, roughly 30% of this county is, is voting for Democrats in presidential elections. So it's not all Republicans. The chance that Biddy's parents aren't voting for Republicans for president is about as good as the chances that Donald Trump would win the 2016 election. Make of that what you will. I will just say, read the primary. Georgia utilizes an open primary system. So that means that unlike in some other states, like states I've lived in, uh, you actually don't have to be registered to a particular party to vote for someone in a primary. So we can't even really use that as like a, a way to guess. So Biddy is, if he is political, we don't see it in the comics. So yeah, in the uh, same year, he, he doesn't watch the State of the Union like around the same time. So whatever. I will say that as someone who grew up in a red county in a blue state, I find it hard to understand how Biddy wouldn't be bothered by it, even if you get used to it. Like, 
obviously I'm just projecting my own experience here and Biddy is very, clearly very good at not thinking about all sorts of things because he not thinks about things all the time. I feel like the culture of Georgia, or at least the culture of this part of Georgia, is very much that you just kind of ignore the social differences you have with other people in your interactions for the most part. So I think Biddy probably is very socially tolerant of people he doesn't agree with. That's not to say that, you know, let's say his parents are Democrats. It's not to say that like behind closed doors, they don't like bitch or gossip, but he probably has like a way of having an unspoken agreement with everybody around him that he doesn't agree with that they're all just going to pretend that this difference doesn't exist. That Southern politeness, this sort of like willful surface level ignoring, even while inwardly you're judging, it's related to the phenomenon of like, bless your heart. It's like, even if I think you are the worst person ever, and we'll meet him in the comics soon. I will not say anything negative. I will maintain a facade of politeness and tolerance and acceptance. And like, I think positivity would be going a little too far. So I feel like if indeed Biddy is not a Republican, it's possible that that's the attitude that he has. Like he's grown up around people he didn't politically agree with, but it wouldn't be polite to be bothered by other people's politics. Ergo, he's just used to like not letting it be a problem for him. But again, there's nothing in the comic to situate Biddy on anywhere in the political spectrum? I mean, I would assume that he's not a Republican just because, like, I know Ngozi's political opinions, but who knows? Yeah, I mean, I would say the strongest, the strongest argument that Biddy is not a Republican would be that it seems pretty obvious that his creator would not want him to be one. Yeah, yeah. At exactly. the same time... There are certainly a lot of gay Republicans, especially of the white male variety. Do I think Dex is a Republican who builds log cabins? Maybe. I don't know. Ready to think about it. Anyway, listen, here he is doing his programming homework or whatever. I guess he is making fewer assumptions about Nursey on the face of it. Like he's not saying... Nursey reminds me of XYZ people who he actually doesn't have that much in common with and therefore he annoys me. Instead, what seems to be coming across is that Nursey has an attitude about wealth that Dex is really frustrated by. Nursey talking about privilege is something that gets Dex's hackles up. Biddy actually says, oh, so that's why you're upset. Nursey called you privileged. And then Dex says, well, no, but he's always going on about that crap. Like he didn't play hockey at a prep school. Oh, let's tar and feather the public school kid. So there's something really interesting happening here where what one might call intersectional tensions of identity and experience are coming into conflict with each other. Of course, I will say that we don't actually get much information about Nursey or his background, as I said before, so like no idea how he's paying for any of this. I think we can safely assume he's from a wealthy family. Certainly that's what I've always assumed, but we don't actually know because we don't know anything about his life. I'm really curious about the way that public school is being talked about here. I think it's a really great 
way of portraying what Dex feels, but I still feel kind of curious about it. Presumably many people on this team went to public high school. I looked up the Yale demographics as well, and 58% of the incoming class had gone to public high school, whereas 42% had gone to private school. Of course, not every public school has a similar experience. It completely depends on the school's financial resources, and that depends on hugely inequitable systems of power and geography and like whether you're in a really wealthy suburb or whether you're in a poor rural area or whether you're in a really wealthy part of a city or whether you're in a poor part of a city, like all of these things are also tied up with race and they're also tied up with narratives about class and race. Not every public school experience is created the same. However, it's clear that Dex has this like real inferiority complex about it, but I'm curious about like, aren't there other public school kids here? Like, didn't Biddy go to public school? Like, I'm just kind of curious about this, this, uh, this thing that's happening. I don't know. I don't really have anything to say about this other than this. I feel like this is probably Dex projecting quite a bit. It sounds like he's been listening to Nursey rant writ large. If what he said to Biddy is anything to go by in a little bit of a like self-aggrandizing kind of bullshitty way where he's just sort of like shitting on the kinds of people he imagines are in opposition to his worldview and Dex is listening to this and getting frustrated by it because he is feeling defensive about the type of person Nursey is describing, which is going to be largely, you know, white, conservative guys. What is interesting about the way this strip is constructed and the way that their dynamic is constructed is that within the context of the comic, you can kind of see, oh, both of them have points. Dex seems kind of like he's carrying a chip around, like he has a chip on his shoulder, like he has some sort of like existential wound from not having everything that causes him to feel defensive and put upon. And it seems as though Nursey is a bit like shitty. His version of liberal-minded openness is condemnatory and he makes a lot of sweeping assumptions and statements about what is and isn't cool cloaked in a facade of like, I'm easygoing and fun. And you can kind of see how these two people or two types of people would probably annoy each other. Truly, I think that these four panels where Biddy is talking to these guys are like some of the most fun I've had thus far. They feel like there's there's something happening in them. There's like meat to get into. I really feel like this is a beautiful little portrait of these two dudes in opposition to each other. I really wish that this went anywhere or did anything. Spoilers, it really doesn't. But even without a resolution or an arc or like any growth at all, well, I guess Dex has a little growth, but there's not much growth in this relationship. I still think that this tension drawn between them is drawn in a really interesting way. And you brought up the fact that politics in this comic is, is... 
basically writ large in that they're these characters and their tensions are a portrait of intersectionality. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure I necessarily want to speak about Check, Please overall, although I feel like this may carry across the rest of the comic, but at least in this strip, it seems like the politics of identity that are coming across are a kind of very baseline rudimentary intersectionality where privileges are overlapping and interconnected and there are different life experiences that cause people to have different types of privilege and we all need to respect that different identities get collapsed into each other in different ways within single people and that's part of what makes being alive and going to a nice college so great. Like it's it seems like that's that's as um that's as developed as things are here. There are a lot of arguments in the fandom about how dynamics between Dex and Nursey as a ship play out, with one that I've seen multiple times being that racism is a more destructive and more pressing social force than like income inequality among the white working class. Ergo, Dex's complaint is not really grounded or his situation is not as bad as Nurses or whatever. But I feel like even though that's the reading that I've seen fans of color and I guess also some white fans make of the comic, it seems like at least within the context of this strip or maybe within the whole story of Dex and Nursey throughout Check, Please, that's not really what the comic is presenting. It seems like the moral is that they both have their things and it's okay because people are just different. And that, like, you know, we all come with something, but we all need to just, like, respect each other. And it's okay to, like, not mesh. But I also wonder if this is, like, how this would be written now. Like, it does kind of seem within this strip, like, the fact that Dex is from a working class lobsterman background and Nursey is mixed race but seemingly his family is relatively well off are sort of like the same and I wonder if that's an argument that this comic would be making if it were being written like in 2020 or even after 2014. I don't think it would be the world is not different and also is vastly different than it was in 2014. Tensions that have always been around, racism that has always been around, obviously is in a very different place in public 
conversation. So I think different kinds of conversations are happening around intersectionality. I think the discourse, and I don't mean this in sort of an argument way necessarily, I mean this in a more scholarly way, but the sort of mainstream discourse about what intersectionality is and how it works has vastly evolved in everyday conversations. I think Ngozi is probably like older and has maybe different opinions than she did in 2014. I mean, I don't know, but I would suspect it would be highly different, especially given the way that the white working class narrative has been weaponized as a racist tool more explicitly in the last four years than than in previous years. There's also a schism on the left or perhaps an invented schism. This isn't an argument that I want to have on this podcast, but I do want to mention that this schism is sort of between identitarian politics and the socialist politics of everything is economics. That kind of plays, at least on the left, a role in some of the complexity that Dex and Nursey seem to be kind of like inadvertently representing here, if not within the comic explicitly, then sort of like within some of the fandom discourses about them. I also don't want to get into like specifics about leftist uh, leftist takes on, you know, our new future. It's interesting to me now from the point of view of 2020 to look back at the strip from 2014 and see tensions that I remember discussing in 2014, but that have blossomed into ever more horrible polarized positions since represented in these two characters. It feels like traveling back in time and it's bizarre. I will tell you that the lobster men I know, yeah, most of them are Republicans. Not all of them, but most of them. I have to admit, I've never met a lobsterman. That's what happens when you live on a boat for a while. Anyway, don't worry about it. Well, let's pivot away from that very serious topic and get to the real goods. Do they kiss? No. Well, not in the comic. As we've discussed, you know, really almost nothing happens in this comic, right? So it's all reading between the lines. Well, some people definitely kiss. Yeah, I guess that's true. There are some kisses in this comic. Is this shippy? Like, what's happening here? This is not something that I find shippy. And that's not to say that I can't ever enjoy, like, Dex and Nursey as a pairing. And I think the potential is there. But I think that's coming off of fandom energy and fandom ideas, not so much being generated by like what's in this comic. Also interesting to note, they don't actually interact in in this strip. So that's part of what makes it hard for me. Like you don't actually see them like creating frisson between each other. It's Biddy mediating for Chowder who's mediating. I think it, to me, it really depends what you mean by shippy. For me personally, do I find these two characters immediately compelling? Eh, not especially. Like, I, I, I didn't take one look at this D-man pairing and was like, oh, it sure is a D-man pairing, you know what I mean? I think that there are a couple things going on here which are either, like, very good marketing tactics on Gozi's part, 
or are because the, the comic is in conversation with fandom so much. But as I discussed, they fulfill a very specific trope. Like they are the opposites attract trope essentially, right? They very neatly fit into that. And unlike Jack and Biddy, they don't resolve their differences exactly. They stay kind of sparking against each other. And unlike Ransom and Holster, the other D-man pairing, they don't like become best friends. They remain kind of in tension with each other. This is a classic shippable dynamic. Uh, whether or not you find it compelling might depend on the particular pairing, but it is something that fandom is like very into in general, I would say. I don't know if you've ever heard the term pair the spare, but what this comic is essentially doing is populating the background with series of pairs of spares who you can very easily be like, and they're making out as well. Yes, that's right. It's the Butters Kenny or Bunny of the of the comic. So for people who might not be familiar with Pair the Spare, usually in a fandom, there's what one might call a juggernaut pairing. This is the pairing that everybody's fucking writing fanfic about and getting excited over. For Check, Please! at the beginning, this was Jack and Biddy. It has since shifted, as we've discussed, another other... Well, once you've got one pairing, there's all these other characters in the background you have to do something with. And, you know, you've got to be in a romantic relationship to have a fulfilling fictional life. So what do you do? You make a map on each other. These guys are, are ripe for the pairing. They fulfill this particular trope. They are extra two dudes in the background of a comic, which is already queer. So like, hooray, we're going to add more queer people to the pile. And last but not least, it's true that they don't interact. But what's also true is that I did read Clint Coulson fanfics in my life. Those characters talked over a radio for one second. And you know how many fanfics that left you? Literally thousands. Unfortunately for all of us, characters actually don't have to have any interaction for people to find reasons to put them together. And these characters, at the very least, do have an established shippable dynamic, but with the bonus of us knowing almost nothing about them, which means perfectly for fandom, there's lots and lots and lots to project into and fill and explore and think about. Was this like a canny marketing tactic on Ngozi's part? Yeah, maybe. Maybe not. I don't know. I certainly think she's really, really good at understanding how fandom works and using it for getting people interested in her projects, which is like more power to her. That's part of making stuff happen. But aren't Ransom and Holster already the spares to pair? And perhaps even more to the point, aren't Lardo and Shitty pair the spares that are also actually canon? Yes. Here's the thing about Lardo and Shitty. That's not Slash, so I don't know about it. The thing about Ransom and Holster is that they're also paired the spare, but they have a different dynamic. You know, you've got you've to offer all of the different dynamics for your spare so that people who want to write, like, best friends forever, friends to lovers, curtain fic, can do that in a Ransom and Holster chapter and then switch to a Nursey and Dex chapter where they're like, you know, he... Felt, I don't know, the words coming to mind are like spit and teeth. He licked a stripe up his arm and it was like, tasted like fire and cinnamon and was weirdly sweet, but also he hated him. He hated him so much. Like, right, you need both dynamics. <laughs> I would just like to say for the record that Secret's cat is actively biting and I can see it on camera and I can see his little, his little claws. <laughs> as they dig into Secret's hand. <laughs> he looks like a Muppet. <laughs> oh no, he's so bad. Do we ship Dex and Nursey now? 
I mean, about as much as I ship anybody in this comic, I guess. Which is to say, I'll read fanfic about it. Don't know that they have any chemistry at all. And yes, I do include Jack and Diddy in those. Well, the last thing I have written on the outline is, why are these people in this comic again? Oh, God, I don't know. Yeah, me either. Okay, well. (laughs) I mean, really, I really stand by what I proposed before, which is I think Ngozi realized that a more diverse group of people would be good. Having a mixed race character, having a character who is socioeconomically not super privileged, I guess, having a Chinese character, these things are good when your strip before this moment was primarily white characters with um, a couple people of color and one woman. So I guess that's wise to make it a more diverse strip. Is that too cynical? I don't I don't think that's a bad thing for the record, but I think that that's part of it. All right. I want to introduce a surprise new section to our podcast, and it's called Rating How Gay What Biddy Looks Like Is. Oh, okay. I'm, yeah, I'm ready. We're going to have to workshop that. So what I want to point out is that he's basically wearing a collared shirt with a pullover, which I don't think is very gay. In one shot, he's wearing just like a gray sweatshirt, which isn't very gay. And in the very last panel, I think I've made the point a couple times that Biddy has the same haircut as, as Holster, and you can really see it in the last panel of this comic. So what's the name of the segment again? Is it how gay Biddy is dressed or how he looks or like what's happening? What am I rating here? And also what's the rating? (laughs) I literally earlier today was like, we should have this segment every single podcast. I'm down. We should do it. But I need to know exactly what I'm rating. You know what I think makes this outfit a little gay? I'll tell you. I'll tell you. His sleeves are rolled up and you can see the cuffs underneath. But they're like above three quarters of his, they're like, they're like at his elbow rather than, you know, three quarters or something, at least in, in one of the pictures. Do you think oh. he's trying to show off his forearms so that Jack will notice and think about the fisting they can do? You know, maybe it's not gay. Maybe it's just metrosexual. I regret that I just said those words. I'm sorry, everybody. I don't mean it. Look out for Tomato's next meta post. Biddy isn't gay, he is metrosexual. <laughs> Coming soon. Do people even use that word anymore? Is that a thing? I don't know, man. I, I don't think so. I haven't heard anybody use any words for six months, so... <laughs> I mean, to be fair, like, you probably shouldn't use the word metrosexual. It's not really a good word. Chowder's hair is just abominable. Yeah, he could comb it. Or get bangs cut, or do something with it. Actually, he should he should mohawk it. That's my chowder headcanon. <laughs> he starts mohawking it once Biddy graduates and Biddy stops talking to everybody because he's busy, busy getting ready for his wedding. Chowder just goes full mohawk. Is the watch that Nursey is wearing here? Is that like the check please like rich person watch, or I can't tell what kind of watch that's supposed to be and whether it's supposed to have, well, I don't remember when people started wearing watches that were digital interfaces. I don't know if it's supposed to be one of those or if it's like an ironic watch from, with like a little tiny, like 1980 style 
digital interface and then a big fancy. Yeah, people people started wearing digital watches like before we were born. I Not digital watches like like <laughs> I didn't mean that. I mean like you know like watches that have little interactive screens that you can touch. You mean and- like a smartwatch, like an app yes. watch? Yes, smartwatch is the word I was trying to think of. I he doesn't have a smartwatch. That's crazy. Well, I'm trying to understand what I'm seeing, and that is one thing that I could be seeing. Because it has a big flat face. Apple Watch 6, colon, blood oxygen tracking in new colors. This is ridiculous. Oh, the very first Linux smartwatch was in 1998. Well, that's probably, yes, obviously, it's probably a Linux watch that nurse is wearing here. I think that's more of a Dex thing, to be honest. Well, I don't think Nursey would know how to use it. I think he would just have it because it's not your normal smartwatch, you know? All right, Nursey Dex shippers. Dex programs a Linux watch for Nursey. Let us know your plot summaries in the comments. I'm going to call it. I'm going to call it. Um, next okay? time, we'll be looking at 2.4, Hazapalooza. Yeah, that's what's next. Um, I've been Secret, and you can find me at Camillier, C-A-M-I-L-L-I-A-R, or Secret, O-M-G, S-K-R-T-O-N-G, on Tumblr, or I'm Familiar on AO3. And I'm Tomato, and you can find me at tomatorights.tumblr.com or tomato underscore greens on AO3. You can find our podcast at checkdisplease.tumblr.com, on Spotify, on Podbean. I just realized how close we are to a certain cowlick. And uh, just want to let everybody know, it's three strips. Get ready. He's mentioned the next strip. You can just call him Kent Parson. Yeah, but I'm really enjoying, uh, you know, ramping up the suspense for myself. Everybody who's listening has read Check Please, right? We don't have anybody following us who... They they are not, they're like reading through the first time in like real time with us or something. No, right? I, I don't know if, well, sorry, everybody. If that is the case, then we've spoiled you from episode one. So uh, good luck with that. To be fair, it takes like two hours to read the entirety of Check, Please, if you're going slow. So I feel like most people have read all of it if they're listening to us. I honestly would give it like a generous 27 minutes. Never mind. Whatever. Let's end the episode. Where can people find us? I already said checkdisplease.tumblr.com. Oh, God, you already said it. This episode's been a fucking mess. Next time, we're going to keep it tight. Another thing that Biddy said to Jack over the negotiation table, they're divorced. All right. The end. I have to stop now. Goodbye. All right. Goodbye. Goodbye. Get out of here. We're done. How do you end recording 37 episodes? I don't know how to do that. You know what just like gets me hard? Mediation. That's what Biddy says during his and Jack's divorce. And then they they take the divorce off the table because that fixed all their problems. Well, I feel like they probably go through with it. They just drag it out for a while. 
And it all like, it's just like a sloppy, psychosexual, acrimonious process. Maybe they do what my old boss did and they go through the divorce all the way through and then a couple years later they get married again and then they get divorced again and then they think about getting married again but then they ultimately decide not to. They just live together. I can imagine Jack's like financial advisor being like, this is, this, this is getting very expensive for you. I feel like maybe you guys can just cohabitate 